you could either do it the way that like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates have done it, where you build up all this wealth and then you give it away on the back end, right? You create a philanthropy organization or whatever, or you could provide something for free and give it away on the front end. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What's up, you gorgeous listeners? It's your boy, Hot Sauce, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, you're going to meet my buddy, James Clear of jamesclear.com. Yes, he's very creative. He's also a delightful, bald-headed man like myself who writes epic articles about habits and self-improvement. I love talking with him about this stuff and excited to share this episode. Here's the three key things you're going to learn today. First, how James failed super hard trying to build an iPhone app. I think he spent around $5,000 plus and no one used it. And this led him to create his blog that's become really successful. Second, the tactics James uses to get 1 million people a month to read his site, exactly how he does it and how he thought of it. And third, you'll learn the exact breakdown of how James makes money online. He shares exactly where his income comes from so you can model your business the same way he does. We talk about this in a ton more. Enjoy. So if you've missed a, a few of my earlier episodes, you can always go to okdork.com slash podcast or search Noah Kagan Presents in your favorite podcast app. My past guests have included men, women, animals, eight-figure entrepreneurs, crazy interesting music artists, and a ton more. Go check them out. How long have you been blogging now and online presence? Five years? Uh, well, jamesclear.com started November 12th, 2012. That, that's kind of when. Almost five years. Yeah, almost five years. When did you start getting recognized? Because one thing I was thinking, like, this is James pre-big book launch famous where you're not going to return my emails. <laughs> I'll always return your emails. Uh, I think after the first month, I had like 100 subscribers. After three months, I had 1,000. After six months, I had 6,000. And then that seventh month, I added six. So I went from six to 12. And that was kind of the time when I feel like it took off. And then it kind of never really slowed down from there. So like at the end of the first year, I think it was 34. And then now it's like 400 or whatever. I still would not describe myself as like well-known. I would just say like I'm like known in my field. I mean, I'm not a celebrity or anything. I got stopped in the airport once for someone to ask a photo. It was not like that stuff happens. How was that experience? Uh, it was hilarious. My wife was the one who ended up taking it. And she was like, are you kidding me right now? She's sleeping with a celebrity. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of people start blogs. A lot of people start online businesses, all this kind of stuff. You've been doubling and doubling and doubling five years now. It seems like it's been working. Yeah. What path did you take differently than all these other people? Like at the time, guest posting was a really big way to grow your audience. And also at the time, having a list of like 10,000 people was like a pretty big number when I was getting started. I remember thinking like, if you had 10,000, then you were like, actually, you were legit. And then if you got 100, you were like the big A player. Like there were very few of them in the blogosphere or whatever. I would say that has changed now. I would say now 100 is the new mark that like, okay, now you're like legit. And then, you know, maybe if you have beyond that, then it's more about like, do you have a best selling book or do you have a million subscribers? Do you have some other metric that like puts you in that A player tier or whatever? I'm sure in five years from now, that'll change and the numbers will be new and the metrics will be new and all that stuff too. One of the questions I asked myself early on was, all right, guest posting seems to be a way to grow an audience. And a lot of people are talking about that. If you could get a guest post on a blog that had 50,000 subscribers at that time, that was like a big deal. Could I do this much bigger? Like, could I get in front of 500,000 people instead of 50? And so that was what got me thinking about, okay, maybe I should work with major media outlets like Time and Entrepreneur and Business Insider and places like that, Lifehacker. And so I skipped guest posting entirely and just went straight to the next level and asked those people if they would build partnerships with me the way they built partnerships with other major media brands. So like when I went to... um entrepreneur, for example, or life hacker or something like that, I would be like, you're already syndicating from men's health, from shape magazine or whatever. 
treat me like you would treat men's health. Like I'm an individual, but just treat me like a media brand and just republish from my stuff. As far as I know, I was one of the first people to do that. And as a result, I was able to get in front of, you know, like entrepreneurs getting 9 million visitors a month or whatever it was. Um, And so that was like a much bigger level of exposure. So I think it was sort of like, what is the level that nobody's thinking about right now? Because like there are always best practices in any industry, right? It's like, okay, everybody does this. Who's got it like figured out? That stuff can be good to do. It's important to ask, like, is this a fundamental? Is this a first principle? Something like you can't avoid? Because if so, you need to make sure you do those things well. But then there's also like, what is one level above this, right? Like, what is the game that's not being played by all these people? And can I play that game? So I think that was kind of one thing that helped a lot early on. And then how does that look for you now with the book? It's a good question. I don't know what the answer to that is yet. We've been thinking a lot about that. Like, if you sell 25,000 copies of a book, that's not going to make you a bestseller unless you do all those in like one week or something. But like if you sell 25,000 copies over the course of the first year, but selling 25,000 copies of anything is really hard. That is not an easy thing to do to get 25,000 people to buy something. So the numbers are really crazy for books. I mean, you know, you need to sell a quarter of a million or something like that to give yourself a shot of being this kind of perennial bestseller or whatever. And so I don't know, we're having a lot of conversations about like, what does that look like? What kind of exposure do we need to do? Do we need to do hundreds of podcasts or hundreds of email newsletters? Or do you just try to do the best you can and write a great book? And then if it is a really good book, it'll grow by word of mouth. I haven't gone through it yet. So I'm not sure what the answers are. But I think that that same question of what is the game that's not being played or what is one level above? I think that's a really good way of framing things. I think that's an important thing to ask. I mean, you have probably done a ton of this with growing different software companies, right? I mean, I don't know what you did for Mint or for Sumo or whatever. It was probably like that, right? You're like, okay, this is what everybody else is doing, but how can we get exposure that's 100x that or something like that? The way that I kind of frame it is that there's not opportunity in a marketplace is the way I look at it. So if you think about it, when you go to the grocery store, everyone always goes to the shortest line because the other lines are longer. Right. And I think about that with marketing, where if you're just trying to go where everyone else is, like you're going to pay market price. And so the only opportunity is if you find some places where no one else is. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where is there inequality in a market? And there's going to be sometimes when you pay a terrible price for something that was just stupid. And that's why there's no line there. It's like when you're in traffic and you drive off the freeway and you're like, I got to get faster. And then I'm going to take all these side streets when really if you stood on the freeway. Was, that's all. I mean, yeah, yeah, the way yeah. I was thinking about it was like with Mint, all these personal finance bloggers, I went and sponsored them when there was no ads on their site. And I said, hey, I'll give you 500 bucks. Can you put Mint's badge on your site? Mm-hmm. Now these personal finance bloggers, because they started doing credit card lead gen, right. are making like six to seven figures. So they would for five hundred bucks, they would do shit. The ads were before they even had ads, and then we did the infographic thing before everybody did infographic. With AppSumo, we did software bundles for everyone else. And I'd say with our marketing, we did the Facebook ads when Newsfeed launched originally. The Newsfeed ads. Oh, that's right. Facebook ads were huge for you for like that brief period, right? Two million dollars in a year. Yeah, we spent a lot. So anyways, the point being is that like, if you're generally doing like Facebook ads now, and you're doing the same ads, and you're paying market price, you're probably not gonna get ahead of many other people, right? This actually is a good point. Just in general, the web moves very fast. And so like some stuff, Facebook now is not the opportunity it was, you're probably not going to want to spend $2 million on Facebook ads, it doesn't work as well as it did. But the good news about that is I think sometimes I have felt this way a lot about all the good ideas are taken for like great books or all the good ideas are taken for good businesses or all the good ideas are taken for marketing. And that's not true at all, especially if the landscape is shifting so quickly, that means opportunities are popping up a lot. On the one hand, that means that's good because then you just need to like look for what the next thing is and like continue to experiment. On the other hand, it can be kind of frustrating. Like I used to get a ton of traffic from Quora. It used to be early on, 
they had this blog function. I would republish an article on there and I was pretty early in it and a couple of them did well. And they actually would email out my article to their users. So it was like millions of people were getting emailed the version that I had posted on Quora. Well, then I had links in there and a couple of them kind of went viral and get like 30 or 40,000 Facebook shares or whatever. Now this is all the version that's on Quora, but because I was linking back to my site, I was getting a ton of traffic through all of that. But then they made the blog a deprecated feature or whatever, got rid of it. I've been experimenting with like a lot of LinkedIn stuff lately and then a lot of the Facebook bots Mm. as like an opportunity before it gets fucked over. You're the second person to tell me about the Facebook bots thing this week. It's basically instead of an email list, you can use Facebook Messenger as your mailing list. Right. So Messenger becomes the inbox basically. Yes. And the whole thing is that people are calling it bot, which I think confuses people. If you just say, hey, you can message all your people through Facebook Messenger, that's what it is. You still have to write it. Like it's basically like you wrote the autoresponder. So you can do two things. You can do bots where like you can say, hey, if they do this, say that. But the real other thing you do is just broadcast, which is just like an email list. Right. And that's where we've seen like 50% open rates and 15% click rates. Who doesn't open a Facebook message? Give it six months. It'll be just like your core oh, right. And then, yeah. And then the other thing. Everybody Facebook, will be fatigued. They'll be fatigued. Number one. Number two, Facebook's going to make you start paying to talk to those customers just like they do on their fan pages. Yeah, yeah. Why did you do email lists early on? Why not well, like, go double down on YouTube or double down back in the day on other? So the email piece, the very first thing I did when I became an entrepreneur was launch this iPhone app at the time, which was like, they were really hot five or six years ago or whatever. And it totally flopped. I spent like 1500 bucks on it. I won this essay competition when I was in grad school and I got 10 grand. If I had not won that, I don't think I would have a business today because that was the money I lived off of for the first six months while I was like trying to figure stuff out. So I had that money and I spent $1,500 of it hiring a development firm on Elance to build this iPhone app. So it came out and it totally flopped. I think to this day, I think it made like $19.17 or something. It was like, it made less than 20 bucks. So immediately I was $1,480 in the hole or whatever. And that was really painful because I was like, wow, I have no idea what I'm doing. I realized the reason that it didn't do anything is because I thought, oh, if you build it, they will come. Like, let me put it on the app store and Apple will take care of it. And I realized I had no one to market it to. And so then I started researching, like, how do people sell stuff? The more that I read about it, the more I found out, oh, an email list is the way to like get in touch with customers. And so then I like went down that rabbit hole for like a year and tried to learn how do you build an email list? How do you get started? Whatever. And that was all of this was like the year before I launched jamesclear.com. So then when I started that site, I knew to focus on the email list. I was starting from scratch, but I at least knew what to focus on. And I knew to make sure that like I had calls to action on each page and like make sure that I The only call to action I focused on for the first two years was getting people on the list and all that stuff. If I was going to start again today, would I do the same thing? I don't know. Maybe today I would try to be a YouTube star or an Instagrammer or something like, you know, like it seems like the new kids that are really coming up fast are on social. I think you have to be careful of that because like their metrics are really big. You know, they got like 800,000 people following their YouTube channel, but then they like publishers have started to get big book deals to some of the YouTubers and then their books flop. I still think email moves people better than the other outlets. It's interesting, the social proof of having a big social following. Like when I talk to any of my friends who aren't in our industry or who aren't paying attention online that much, they are all impressed by how many people follow me on Twitter. Even though I have like one sixth of the people on Twitter as I do on email, nobody cares about the email numbers if they're just an average citizen. They're very impressed by the social piece. And you know, you can go buy that on Fiverr. Oh, right. You could buy 10,000 people or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. on Fiverr, you can go get like 10,000, 100,000 for very few bucks. I don't know. All that stuff, like buying spots on the bestseller list for books, buying social followers. Like, first of all, it's just like not really my style, but also, can you really be proud of it? You know, like at the end of the day, it's kind of like, I'd rather feel good about what I was working on. 
how do you make money? And I do think it's one of your Achilles heels to some extent where you're so good at writing content and improving things and teaching things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people would go to your site and be like, so how does he make money? Yep. I think Craig Newmark, the Craigslist guy, he's got some quote. People ask like, why didn't I monetize all of these different things on Craigslist, right? We only have like one out of the 200 categories that you have to pay for or whatever. And he was like, you can change the world in two ways. You could either do it the way that like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates have done it, where you build up all this wealth and then you give it away on the back end, right? You create a philanthropy organization or whatever. Or you could provide something for free and give it away on the front end. And he's very much thinking like, I would like to give a lot of mine away on the front end. And he's done such a good job of that, creating something so valuable that he ended up becoming a billionaire anyway. But he certainly could have made a lot more money than he did. That philosophy kind of resonates with me. I like that idea of like, let me give it away on the front end. Let me provide 500 articles for free and to put a level of effort into that, that they could be published in the New York Times if I wanted that or whatever. And certainly most of mine probably couldn't. But I think long-term, as I revise and improve things, I think that's a good goal. 10 years from now, if I have 250 to 500 articles that are like of that quality bar, that sounds really good to me. And I feel good about the idea that I could provide that service, so to speak, or to add my little bit of collective knowledge to humanity, make me feel like I contributed something. Yeah. Okay. So I like that. So that's the philosophy. But yeah, I still want to optimize for revenue within the construct of that mission. So there are four or five different revenue streams we have right now. So first one is book deal. And hopefully if the book sells well, there'll be royalties from ongoing sales. Second one is courses. That's also the biggest one for me. So I have one course called the Habits Academy, and that is kind of related to the book, but it's not available. If you go to the site, you're not going to see it. So we only pitch it evergreen to a new cohort each week from the email list. How long after I sign up for the mail list do you send it? Uh, so it's not based on time. It's based on engagement. So if you open a certain number of emails or click a certain number of pages on the website, your lead score goes up. And then once you cross that threshold, then you'll get pitched it. So books, courses, Amazon affiliate revenue. I decided early on that I didn't want to have to worry about being an affiliate for courses like online courses and stuff because it's easier to say no to 100% than to say no to 99% than justify the other one. That's such a good point. So like I just didn't want to have to mess with that. But if I mention a book and an article, which I'll do a lot, I'll link to it on Amazon. So I put my course on Amazon and then you're... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, savvy. You know, that's like 80 cents a book or something. But the site gets over a million visitors a month now. So that adds up. And then keynote speaking. So I don't want to do a ton of paid speaking, but like one paid gig every month or two, like eight to 10 a year. That sounds like a good rate to me. I love travel, but I would prefer to travel for fun than to travel for a conference. Yeah. I think long-term, if I could do six gigs a year at a good rate, that would be like an ideal way for that to be part of the business, but not take over my life or anything. With the pie chart of that, what does that breakout look like? Courses would be the biggest one, and that's probably like 60 to 70%, depending on the year. Amazon is like 10%. Keynotes are probably like 15. Maybe courses are less. Maybe they're like 50. And then the remainder is book. 50% courses, 10% Amazon. 15% speaking, and then whatever the remainder is, 25. On the book? Actually, you know what? It's hard for me to include the book because it hasn't launched yet. All I've seen are advances and stuff. Yeah, so I don't really know what that'll look like long term. I think I've been annoyed with habits because I feel like people are doing micro optimizations on life instead of macro. Mm. So I guess one thing is like, what have you changed about your habits from doing all this from this book? Well, so first of all, in that micro macro thought, not all habits are equal, right? So like some habits have a very high rate of return in life and some habits are like very minor. There was one woman I was talking to, we were talking about exercise habits. And she said something like, when I'm working out, I like always get my Nutrigrain bar or something like that, right? Like switching from one thing like a Snickers or something. Just the difference here is just so minimal. 
And I think that this is something people can really be frustrated about with small habits is that we all know people who have made small changes that like piddle away time each day or do things that don't really move the needle or otherwise waste their time on these little optimizations that like you say, micro optimizations rather than macro. So there are two pieces of this. The first is that some habits do provide a really high rate of return. Things like meditation or going to the gym consistently and exercising, a writing habit, for example. I mean, that one habit is basically like, that's the 80-20 of why I have a business is the fact that I stuck to a writing habit. Walking, there are a variety of examples. For some people, if they're in debt, like budgeting, getting their debt paid off, that one habit can ripple into their life in a lot of different ways. So Sometimes these are called keystone habits, but the idea that you have one thing that can like ripple out across a broad range of stuff. I think focus on those habits first rather than these micro things. Well, I like what you say, the return on habit. Yes. Like there's a disproportionate right. ones. Reading books, that is a habit with an incredibly high rate of return in life. But the second piece is if you make these small 1% changes, like you switch out rather than eating a hamburger, you have a salad for lunch every day. It doesn't seem like much, and it's not going to make that much difference if that's the only thing that you do. You can imagine it's kind of like the system of your life, all of the forces in your life have a certain weight. It's like the tide. The tide is like washing you into shore. You're always in a whirlpool and you're circling this drain. It's always bringing you back to the same drain. But if you stack a bunch of 1% changes on top of each other, you start eating a salad for lunch instead, you set your water bottle and your shoes out by the door so that you go running after work, you layer all these different changes, right? You make like say 50 that are all organized around the same goal. Then you can shift the weight of the system. And if you shift the weight of the system enough, you make enough of these micro optimizations, then what ends up happening is your natural behavior on a given day ends up being good rather than bad. And that I think is the real goal is like, how can we sustain a habit over the long run? You have to design a life for yourself that nudges you in all these different ways toward the outcomes you want. And so it's actually the layering of many 1% changes that like leads to a sustainable change rather than getting super motivated for two weeks or rather than just making like one or two little changes and then being like, well, it didn't make a difference. It's because it gets washed out by the other forces that are in your life. Yeah. I went to Israel for a month and I gave up all my habits. Mm -hmm. When I came back, I realized like, okay, well, these are good in the 1%, but at least for what I'm noticing, I should just focus on the things I'm spending a lot of my time on and then try to build better habits around just the major things. So like sleeping, work, and then like my hobbies and things like that. We underestimate how important those fundamentals are, but I think coming up with a really creative marketing strategy, developing a really interesting book idea, having some kind of savvy new product launch or whatever. This stuff is all like a high level part of the game. Like it requires really creative thoughts. But the only way to get to those creative thoughts is if you've internalized the fundamentals enough to have those thoughts. Like imagine if I'm trying to write a really creative book or trying to come up with like a really interesting idea for that, for a chapter, but I haven't mastered the fundamentals of like showing up and getting my writing habit in each day. If you're fighting the friction of the fundamentals, you don't even have a chance at like reaching the peak performance. So like in a lot of ways, habits and mastering the fundamentals creates the foundation that peak performance can extend from. If you don't have that, then you got this like really rickety house that you're trying to build and you're trying to get up to like the third floor, but you have nothing for it to stand on. For yourself, like what's a habit that you've given up? Because I know for you, you said the reasons you've been successful among this indication play was that you've written Monday and Thursday for years. Yep. I think you've mentioned at last time we talked, like you stopped at one time or you didn't do it for a few yep. weeks. Like, I think that's one of the things I wonder about guilt and letting go of habits. Uh huh. So like what happened with that and what other habits have you? Well, so one that I gave up this year 
every Monday, my assistant locks me out from all social media. She resets the passwords on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then on Fridays, she gives them to me. And so I get to log in over the weekend. And then on Monday, she resets it again. That's smart. And <laughs> that's actually, it's funny how we need that for ourselves. That's actually pretty smart. Yeah. So motivation rises and falls. And you can actually map this in the brain if you want to be real technical about it. There's like a dopamine spike. But what that means is that motivation comes in waves. It comes in cycles. And so sometimes we're motivated to do something like you're laying in bed at night and you're thinking, oh, okay, I need to get in shape. Like I'm really going to commit tomorrow morning. I'm going to wake up and go for a run. And so you're motivated then. You're motivated at the wrong time, right? You're motivated at 9 p.m. rather than being motivated at 6 a.m. when you need to do the run. But there are ways of locking in future behavior. And this getting locked out of social media is one example of that. If you can do that for yourself, if you can lock your future behavior in, then you can take advantage of motivation when you have it. And then you're like stuck with it later. And so you don't have to worry about like not following through or whatever. What have you noticed since she's been doing that for you? How quickly I didn't miss it is the thing that I noticed. I thought I was going to like miss being on Twitter, miss being on Facebook or like feel like I was missing out on something or feel like I needed access. I would say about once a week, I feel like I need access. Like, oh, I wish I could post this right now. But then I just post on Saturday and it does fine. Do you find yourself more productive? Because sometimes I feel like I actually like the outlets or the distractions of Reddit or some of these places. I think everybody needs to recover. So if you're using it for that, it's not possible for me to work on a book for like nine hours straight and actually be focused the whole time. I need periods of, even if it's just five minutes to like walk outside so that my brain can like reset enough to dive in for the next like focused period. So if you're using it for that, then that's fine. But what I find is that these technologies are designed this way to keep you engaged. And so almost always just checking your phone or just checking Twitter, or just looking at Facebook for a second turns into something more. So this is actually another thing that I think is really powerful about habits that people don't often realize. In a way, they're like an entrance ramp onto a highway and they kind of like set the menu of options available for you. So take the habit of like pulling your phone out of your pocket. This is something that's so mindless, so normal that none of us think about it anymore. You pull your phone out of your pocket and then you see the Instagram app or whatever and you tap on it, you open your email inbox. And so then for the next 20 minutes, you're browsing photos, you're responding to emails or whatever. And it was all just because of that one little habit of pulling your phone out that sets the menu of choices that you have available. What you, You're now living through this digital window. The key is that that on-ramp, that entrance ramp to this highway of social media or whatever, it doesn't matter whether you're using your phone in a productive way or not. There's more productive things you could do on your phone and less productive ones. But once you've made that choice, once you've entered that on-ramp, once that menu has been set, you're not doing the most productive thing because you're not writing the article or working on the product launch or whatever it was that is the highest and best use of your time. And so the key is if you can get rid of these little habits, like it's very simple to do that. When I write, I charge my phone in the bedroom. I keep it on the bed. It's on vibrate. So I can't hear it vibrate at all. It's in a different room. I don't see it. And then I get four focused hours of work from like eight to noon done rather than having the urge to pull it out of my pocket and get sent down that highway again. Just by removing one little piece of friction, you actually remove 30 minutes of wasted time. I think your point as well that you said earlier that I totally agree with. So I removed email from my phone uh-huh. just completely. I removed Twitter and Facebook. Yep. One of the things that was kind of surprising about it is like you kind of forget. Because I notice I'm at dinners and I'm talking to you, but I'm like, oh, Twitter, yep. oh, let me use that thumb muscle. Now that it's gone, I'm like, well, I guess I have to fucking enjoy these people more often. Why do you think people need another habit book? I feel like there's nudge and trigger and yep. traction and All right. So a lot of these books talk about why we do what we do, why we behave the way we do. And not that many talk about how to change the system that leads to those behaviors, layering small changes on top of each other and like shifting the direction of the system of your life so that good habits kind of naturally result. 
a little bit of that is like the, how do we implement this and actually execute on it and get better results? So I think that's important. But there's a deeper reason, which I think is even more critical, which is that we often talk about habits as the method to external measures of success, like making more money, being more productive, losing weight, meditating. And it's great. Habits can provide a lot of really good benefits for that. But I think they also are the method through which we shape our beliefs about ourselves. So for example, if you go to church every Sunday for 20 years, you believe that you are religious. If you study Spanish every Tuesday night for 30 minutes, you believe that you are studious. The things that you believe about yourself come out of the habits and behaviors that you perform. When you're born, you come in, you don't necessarily come in totally as a blank slate, but you don't have beliefs. Like if you grow up in a Muslim family, you grow up Muslim. If you grow up in a Christian family, you grow up Christian. You get conditioned based on what you repeat and what you're exposed to. So these beliefs that we have about ourselves, whether I'm a confident person or I'm not, I'm an athletic person or I'm not, I'm a creative person or I'm not, they've been conditioned. Our identity has been shaped through the experiences that we have over and over again. And each little moment in life counts. And it's not that one moment counts more than another, but it's that our habits get repeated over and over again. So over the broad span of years of your life, they account for the bulk of the evidence that is provided for your identity. It's like each action you take is a vote for the type of person that you think you are. And the more votes that you cast for that identity, the more you come to believe in it. And so in this way, habits not only shape our sense of self, but they become the method through which you can believe something new about yourself. If you want to become a more confident person, become a more talented athlete, become a more creative thinker, then by practicing creative habits or athletic habits or confident habits, then you start to provide evidence. You start to cast votes for that type of identity. And I think that in that way, it can be a much deeper and more powerful conversation. The surprising power of small habits and how like 1% changes can compound and add up to significant results. And then it's also about like how to build a system that lets good habits naturally result rather than like thinking that's about willpower or motivation or something like that. It's also about the type of person you believe that you are and the sense of self that you have. All right. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you like my conversation with the man of many talents, James Clear. If you did, go say hi to him on the interwebs at jamesclear.com or Twitter at james underscore clear. Next, go tell a friend you love him. Yo, dog, it's the holiday season and I'm grateful for you. Let's grab a matcha tea together. <laughs> Have a swell day. What's your favorite song this year? <laughs> <laughs>